Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're looking at the COP28 summit, which begins this week in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and we're asking what it can achieve. Every year, the Conference of the Parties, or COP, brings together governments who have signed up to climate action under the United Nations. And since 2015, under the legally binding Paris Agreement Treaty, almost all countries in the world have committed to keep temperature rises well below, that's a quote, 2 degrees C and ideally 1.5 degrees centigrade. They've committed to build resilience to climate change and to make finance systems work for climate action. But eight years on, the news isn't great, though not nothing. The United Nations estimates the world is on track to reach warming of 2.5 to 2.9 degrees C. Meanwhile, the host nation, the UAE, has been accused by the BBC of using official COP28 meetings with governments to try to sign oil and gas deals, something it vigorously denies. So we're going to talk about what success looks like at this COP and what kind of cooperation is required to achieve success and what happens, I guess, if it all fails. We are all here in the studio, which is terrific. We have Anna Yang, the Executive Director of our brilliant Sustainability Accelerator. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. We have Ruth Townend, who's a research fellow in our Environment Programme, focusing on climate diplomacy, which could not be more appropriate. Welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. And as well, we have Bernice Lee, the Hoffman Distinguished Fellow for Sustainability here at Chatham House. Welcome. Thank you. Well, we're all here in the studio, which is a remarkable pleasure. So we can get right to the point and what we should expect from COP28. Bernice, could you take us into that? Of course. I mean, we're looking at COP and what we should expect in terms of successes, and there are many ways to do it. First, of course, is whether or not the world's governments will be able to deliver what the developing countries asked for, which is the loss and damage facility. We'll come on to that in a moment. Indeed. Secondly, it will be about whether or not countries can find a way to come together around some new ambitious targets. And it looks like that there will be new energy targets that will be set, which is tripling renewable energy, as well as doubling energy efficiency as well. And these are targets that every country would sign up to individually to try and reach these? Well, the spirit of Paris Agreement is that all the countries will separately, yet together, deliver their nationally determined climate efforts and targets. And so, indeed, countries will aspire to signing up to those and therefore delivering against those targets as well. We've had this first global stocktake of climate action under the Paris Agreement, and it's got results on how on track or off track the world is. What do those results show? But it is showing us that we're not doing enough together. At the moment, we, we will be needing something like 43% cuts on 2009 level, and we are at about 2% at the moment. Ruth, we were just chatting as we were sitting down about the breaking news on loss and damage. Can you explain to us what the loss and damage fund is about and the status, the breaking status on, on your laptop in front of you of the talks on this? So the loss and damage fund is a way of addressing the climate impacts that climate vulnerable countries are already suffering as a result of climate change and that they stand to suffer as a result of climate change in the future. The Paris negotiations so far have focused mainly around mitigation, so reducing emissions and preventing further climate change and adaptation, so responding to climate change so that we're not so vulnerable and not so much damage happens. Loss and damage is essentially where we get to when mitigation and adaptation fail. 
And countries who are suffering this loss and damage are usually those who are least responsible for the global emissions that cause them. So they're poorer they're the, later on in their development from the old industrial economies. And they're saying, look, we're getting hit by the effects of climate change now. Can you please pay something to help us deal with those effects? Precisely. They haven't had the benefits of exploiting the world's fossil fuel resources over a long period of time to further their development. So they're further behind to begin with. And then they're also suffering these setbacks as a result of climate change and stand to continue to suffer those setbacks. So understandably, they want to have assistance from the countries who have benefited from using those fossil fuels so that they can develop their resilience and not suffer so much in future. And a couple of years ago, it looked as if agreement on this might be um, impossible to get, but actually it was a breakthrough at last year's COP. And now we actually seem to have an agreement on this fund starting with even a tiny bit of money in it. Yes. So the exciting breaking news today is that the COP28 has really got off to a flying start by agreeing this loss and damage fund on the very first day of the conference. Often the negotiations run very long and things don't get resolved until towards the end of the two weeks. And many of us have spent long nights watching those negotiations. But today, the presidency is clearly very pleased that it has some good news to offer the world. The fund has been established and the first pledges have been made. Of how much so far? Well, including 100 million from the UAE. I think also 100 million. 100 from, million what? Ah, 100 million US dollars. There Sorry, you go. that there wasn't you go. very helpful. There you go. 100 million from the UAE, 100 million from Germany. There's also a pledge of 40 million from the UK government and other wider pledges. And there's nothing yet from the US, is there? But though the US has made the point, look, we don't treat this as, as and we don't want it to be seen as, as mandatory or as reparations for the past. This has to be a voluntary commitment. But that all said, it and Special Envoy John Kerry have been supportive of the principle, haven't they? Finally. At COP27, it looked as though the US were potentially going to block the way to this loss and damage fund being established after the EU stood up and unexpectedly said that it would support it. But the US has now taken steps that are supportive of the fund. Firstly, um, the fund will be hosted for an interim period at the World Bank, which, as we know, is very strongly influenced by the US. Also, the US has, in fact, made a commitment of 17.5 million. So that's a lot smaller than the commitment made by the UAE and by Germany. But it does show the US's willingness under specific terms which do not involve admitting any kind of legal responsibility for climate change to support and contribute to that fund. Anna, this sounds like a breakthrough. Would you call it that? Yeah, and I think this is a great start for what, two weeks ahead of us that we have in terms of sort of official uh, negotiations, but also all sorts of sectoral non-state actor actions. So, And we normally don't expect such a good start, and especially people knowing that there are two long weeks with long nights of negotiation, this is a really good way to start. Having said that, there is also many issues that these countries will collectively have to deal with, such as sort of plan for more ambitious national determined contribution. So what individually countries can do and how does that link to the entire economy? What are individual sectors will have to do? And also it, need, it will need to be all-encompassing all greenhouse gas. So it's not only carbon, but methane and other kind of global warming glasses. There are sort of in need for higher ambition on sort of 
energy packages, for example, like we need to triple renewables, double energy efficiency, accelerate phase out of fossil fuel, which was one of the contentious issues last year on phasing out and phasing down. The issues that I particularly follow quite closely is around nature, like how do we embed nature and ecosystem protection and how do we connect the two COPs? The COP last year, the, the Montreal Biodiversity a framework, how, how they work in more synergy with the climate COP, the food. Uh, I think UAE was the, the UAE presidency really put the food system squarely at the center of it. And obviously, Chatham House has been working quite a lot on the food system work, but also we just launched the land report, which is an incredible work. Yes, we do. Do give a plug for that. Our great land report. To, to, to help frame the debate. So, you know, and all of this is like we do have a lot ahead of us for all the negotiators and to, to work on. And so Lost and Damage Fund is a really good start. It helps raise the spirit. So let me ask the three of you this, which is about the room for optimism. And this is definitely not something we would normally be talking about mm. on day one or two of a, of a COP. But I'm struck by the conversation that Chatham House had on stage with Bill Gates about a month ago, where he said it was about climate change. And he said, do you know, uh, obviously the temperatures and the emissions are not where we'd like them to be, but things have moved, particularly on the diplomatic front. You're seeing more potential for countries to talk to each other. And I'm thinking of a private uh, discussion that Chatham House had under the Chatham House rule about a week ago with a leading US and UK diplomats. And there was a long spell of gloom talking about the Middle East. And then they said, um, oh, but COP next week. Actually, things are moving. There's room for agreement. So just on this diplomatic point, you're all veterans of watching these things, as you said, late at night. Does it feel that we're in a different, more constructive diplomatic space than, say, five years ago? Bernice? Well, I suppose US and China came out of the gate before COP by having a breakthrough that really set the stage between the two of them, agreeing around, among other things, obviously action on methane and also working together in different areas, which actually have set the scene for very different kind of atmospheric already. So in some sense, they have set the baseline from which others can build on. And I also think that having the loss and damage fund so quickly approved in the day one is obviously a good diplomatic sign from the, mm. from the host in the sense that given all of the pressure on the host at the moment, all the rumors, all the stuff, which I'm sure we're going to talk a bit more about today, it is good to see that at least they have got one thing right, which is to make sure that loss and damage didn't become the last thing that happened mm. that actually ended up dragging everyone else behind. So in some sense, what we have seen so far are the kind of money that are enough to keep developing countries on board, but perhaps not enough to really deliver all the monies that is needed, but that is good enough to unlock some of the more, more around higher level ambition related negotiations in the next two weeks. It's good to have that money there, though I saw one report that it takes the World Bank couple of hundred million dollars to set up a, yeah. a fund, a new fund, in order to begin administrating, which seems a lot of money and is going to soak up a lot of these initial donations. Anna, do you agree with that picture of just a bit more room for optimism on countries' willingness to talk to each other? It's almost like a necessity, right? I think in, I was in that same meeting that you were, and it is sort of in the middle of the crisis, the multiple crisis that we, we face. It is in spite of that, where are the spaces where the collab where diplomacy and international collaboration is needed? And so we kind of all hang our hope and expectation in that. And as somebody who's been working or following climate change for a very, very long time, 
it's almost like a survival need to look at it always from a glass half empty and glass half full, right? It's never enough, but always just enough for us to keep on fighting for it and then always aim for higher ambition. And so our take is always like, we need more, we need more. Sorry, when I I say I need more is we need more ambition. We need more commitment and we need more implementation. We need more money to, to enable least developed countries to be on this journey. But at the same time, we need to be able to recognize how far we have come, right? So that's the balance that we always need to walk. How much do you think the mood and the possibility of agreements like this one have been affected by China's own huge investment in solar power? It is a new factor, isn't it? Of course, I mean, it's very different compared to 20 years ago, let's say, from obviously Copenhagen onwards to Paris, where you know, renewables, hopefully will the price will come down, come down, will come down. But now we have a reality where solar energy is now one of the cheapest electricity in the world. This actually means that the world has more possibility, a lot of which is made possible indeed by China's investments. I think my colleague, actually, I just heard Anthony Froggett quote in a number recently that China is going to deploy some 200 gigawatts of solar electricity in 2023, and that is alone about double the amount the US has currently. Mm-hmm. Now, solar powered, solar, mm-hmm. solar electricity, mm-hmm. but there are also many, many evidence, including those promoted by China itself, that it is going to exceed its 2030 targets on renewable electricity and renewable energy. So, indeed, a lot of it is made possible by China's manufacturing powers, but also its deployment ratio as well, which is very, very high. Ruth, so against many expectations, this agreement has been reached on day uh, one or two of, of COP. What else should we look out for in the next the next 10 days? Good question, Bronwyn. So the key issues that I think a lot of the world will be looking at are action on the global stock take. So what is the political response to this stock taking of, of climate action and how, given that that shows we're we're very far off track. Can we get on the track we need to be on? Also, the global goal on adaptation. So adaptation, again, is a really big priority for developing countries. And this is an area that has historically been very underfunded and underattended to. And so seeing a shift on that. And then the language around fossil fuels. So we have this situation where the, the presidency has first of all, has has a strong vested interest in fossil fuels, being, as they are, an oil-producing state. We have the president... Who, You're talking about the United Arab Emirates, the host of this. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So the host, Dr. Sultan Al-Jabbar, is one of the chief executives of ADNOC, which is the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Um, and there was a lot of concern when he was first announced as the president. Um, so I think 100 different stakeholders, including negotiators and, and government stakeholders, wrote to say that he should not be appointed to that post, that that was inappropriate. And then we've had these revelations around possibly using COP28 official meetings to strike oil and gas deals. So understandably, there's a lot of concern about whether he will have the impetus and drive to reach agreement among countries around phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels. I want to come on to the UAE's um, own role just in a second, but just on this, what we might expect from the rest of it, obviously linked with the ability of the UAE to get these deals through. Bernice, are you going to chip in there? Well, yes, I was hoping to, because despite all the controversy around its host, you know, its COP presidency itself, the, the moment of truth for fossil fuel is really what is should be expected from this COP. Really, mm-hmm. it is about whether or not ultimately it has the dip- diplomatic clout to include language in the cover sheet, probably, on fossil fuel. 
probably is more than a mention. It has to be a bit more than a mention. It hopefully will be about face out or face down, unabated at least, fossil fuel and emitted coal, for example. The reason why this is important is because so much energy has been focusing on this presidency that it is time for it to deliver. But also, I think that very, very little, however, has been focused on not just the language of the COP, but also what the fossil fuel sector itself, including companies, will do. Now, the media has completely missed out on this point as well, that they kept looking at the language of the COP, but not really enough about what will these companies or producers do? Will they be contributing, for example, the loss and damage fund? Will they make commitments themselves, not just on methane, but also on many other issues around oil and gas sector. How are they actually going to contribute to the COP? Because, you know, the UAE and others have talked about there being interlocutors having to be included. All great. So now, in addition to the language for COP, what are these fossil fuel companies and producers going to do and contribute for the future? Is it going to make a difference in terms of their balance sheet of portfolio investment, for example? So these are some of the things that we should be looking out for in the mm. coming weeks. Because at the moment, despite all the attention around fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel sector, this is also going to be a very business-friendly COP as well. Mm. So the extent to which this COP presidency could be beset with accusations of other forms of bias will be something to watch out for as well, whether or not too many private companies will be making commitments that don't seem to pass the, you know, pass the, what's the language? Test. The sniff test, indeed. The I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but anyway, well, we, we, know what you, test, we know sorry. what you mean. I was <laughs> going to say integrity threshold sorry. when right. it comes to all the integrity or greenwashing threshold, all, all that sniff test that Anna very adequately, very, very colourfully invented. I love it. All right. Let's go then to the UAE itself and its role. It's obviously been controversial right from the start to pick a big petro state as the host of this conference. But the people arguing on both sides of this, um, I was very struck by the column by William Hague, the former foreign secretary on Monday in The Times, it was in the context of the proposed uh, telegraph investment by UAE investors saying there's far more to like and admire about this country than there is to dislike or fear. And went on to describe various liberal things it had done liberal compared to its neighbours, though he acknowledged that it is controversial in the context of COP. But we have heard these allegations, which the UAE does deny that it's been using its role as host to try and strike deals. Ruth, what have you made of this? It's really good news that the UAE has managed to strike this loss and damage deal on the first day. And the reason for that is that trust in the negotiation has, has long been in extremely short supply, particularly between developing countries and the developed world. By solidifying an outcome of this COP at this early stage, I think the UAE has gone some way to not sidetracking, but to deflecting some of the criticisms leveled against it. Look, all countries have conflict of interest, so that is not surprising. So the mm. point is, how do you manage them? Mm. Obviously, we should not be expecting the UAE to drop its own hat as an oil producer just because it is a COP presidency. At the same time, it is, of course, important to remind ourselves that the proof ultimately would be in the pudding. We hear they have two weeks to prove that they are actually made of stronger stuff, that they can separate the conflict of interest and manage them properly for the rest of the world as well. Anna, what do you make of the UAE's claims to being a, be a big green investor, investment in lots of green energy. And Dr. Sultan al-Jabbar, as, as president, did fly off to sign various deals straight before this COP around the region and so on. What do you make of that? I think it's following the money, right, in terms of comparing how much today, in terms of sort of how are they really aiming to pivot towards 
this low carbon transition and how where they put their current and future investments in this sort of energy and climate transition. I think that's what we should be looking at. To what extent it's legitimate and also to, to Bernice's and Ruth's point, right, and linking back to the discussion on, on COP presidency, it is about credi- credibility and legitimacy. Obviously, the controversy doesn't help, but what matters in the end is about what are the outcomes of the COP and also what are the real money that has been put on the table and how will some of the commitments be translated into action. And I think that's what we care about. A lot of it is for show, right? And then the thing is, how do we see past the show and see what is really behind? So if you had to pick out one thing in the next week that you would like to see, that is, it is possible that we will see it, what would it be? Well, I'm going to sort of really, really pivot towards nature <laughs> because okay. I have to. I uh, mean, obviously, you know, this whole embeddedness of nature with climate is something that I would really want to see moving forward. I think over, you know, ever since in the beginning of climate that I've been following, nature has always been the poor cousin of the climate discussion. And actually, just based on all the the papers from my PCC or, or other reports, is that nature is preservation, conservation of nature and natural habitat are key to our delivery. And this is something climate. that countries might agree in the next week. Yeah, they, they have agreed, right? I think the question is how much money you put, again, it's all about money, right? How much money you put to, on the table for nature funds, for also the Glasgow forest commitment that was made back in Glasgow. And I think what is interesting, and I'm going to put Brazil into this conversation, right? Brazil is one of the biggest countries that has a large extension of tropical forest and Brazil now with a new government of under Lula has come back to the international stage and since his presidency the deforestation rate in the Amazon has declined by 22%. So those are great signs because it just really literally a country by reducing its deforestation rate is already contributing to its own uh, national determined contribution in terms of carbon emission. Yes, though it does still, the figures do still mean that deforestation is going on. Yes, yes. And it, you know, how to fix deforestation then is a really economy-wide debate, which is how a country like Brazil, and Brazil is not the only case there, but how countries who rely on agriculture can create um, deforestation-free production model, right? Just like a lot for a lot of developed countries, how they move into a fossil fuel-free energy system and economy. For a lot of agricultural dependent countries is how do you move from that dependency of, you know, exploratory uh, natural resource. So that's the transition question that we should focus and also see how the, the part of the negotiation, how countries can come up with that. If I can twist your question slightly, Bronwyn, the things that I don't want to see coming out of this mm. call. All right, that's somehow subtly less positive, but go on then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think two things for me. First is backtracking. So we've seen concern over green lash in Europe at the moment, and we've seen countries like the UK subtly rolling back some of their net zero commitments or their, their policies that All right, so I wanted to ask you on exactly that point. You write about climate diplomacy and you've got countries like like, uh, the UK in the cost of living crisis and the prime minister saying, look, we really have to look on behalf of the people who voted for us. We have to look at the 
cost to this and perhaps delay some of these measures, whether in the UK's case, it's a, it's about deadlines for household boilers and Germany going through much the same kind of debate. And what would you say to these politicians who are saying, look, we're doing this on, on behalf of voters. Yes, they care about the environment, but they care about costs even more. Pick up Anna's point, it's all about the money. And we're just going to have to wait a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose two points. One is that it's very clearly established that early action on climate will result in lower costs over the medium to long term. If you look at how we would have had to make, I think, 3% cuts a year if we had started climate action 20 years ago. And now we're looking at 18% emission cuts every year, which is far less doable. And the costs of achieving that could be astronomical if we don't start taking action now. Um, we're going to need substantial negative emissions technologies to even begin this to is try like pulling to... carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, which we which is my second point about sidetracking, but I'll get on to that <laughs> in a second. But I think it's very clear that climate change is going to be very, very expensive. And governments now need to respond to these concerns, that these very legitimate concerns of their populations about the cost to them of this. They need to respond in two ways. One is by supporting those who have the lowest carbon footprint because they have the least capacity to pollute, the poorer people in society who are not polluting much anyway. So they need to support them with changes such as insulating their homes, uh, accessing sustainable heating, healthy diets, uh, healthy and sustainable diets. And then they also need to use policy sticks. So they need to think about subsidies. They need to think about taxations for those who have larger carbon footprints, who have more capacity to make cuts and also who have more potential to develop the aspirational aspects of climate change, lifestyle change. But you can't ignore the inequality element to this, or you will get the kind of backlash that we are starting to see in Europe. Well, that's one of the reasons why they haven't, for example, ramped up fuel duty mm-hmm. more, is because of the, the disproportionate effect it would have on, on poorer people. Exactly, whereas those who use a lot of fuel can afford to pay. Yeah. Bernice? is almost a fetishization now of this cost of living question, which is, of course, extremely important. At the same time, no one is actually factoring in the cost of inaction, mm. as Ruth is talking about. We are talking about loss and damages for poor countries, but, you know, who is paying for heat waves in Germany, mm. floods in the UK, floods in the United States? Mm-hmm. So in some sense, the problem is that we have a very one-sided argument in some ways on this question. At the same time, even though it is difficult, most of the survey around the world, I just looked at one by Globescan recently, a study of 31 countries or so, looking at you know some 10,000 interviews suggesting that actually very small very small number of them 6% of them are against strong climate action 94% mm. are supportive so in some sense the question is how do we make sure that it delivers multiple goals at the same time environmental social and others mm. it cannot be beyond the wits of men and women to deliver those at the same time let me ask you finally just picking up on what bernice has, has just said how much room there is for still some quick wins if i can put it this way swinging from the intricacies of European politics, to, um, in fact, Turkmenistan. You were at the meeting I was at where uh, one of our speakers said, look, the flaring from one field in Turkmenistan actually emits more damaging gases for the atmosphere than the whole of the UK economy. And I looked this up. uh, And in fact, yeah, there were indeed figures that have come out this year. Mm. How much room do you think there is in the politics for what seems like a simple step? Say to Turkmenistan, um, how about stopping the flaring from that field? I mean, flaring is interesting because flaring usually follows uh, the newness of any 
gear and investments. So in some sense, it is about having new investments. The UAE, for example, at NOC, has relatively you know, small flaring, partly because most of their facilities are newer. At the same time, it's a good segue for me to point out that one of the wins that we would like to see is definitely more global action on methane. It is Methane is much more damaging. Yes, well, it's than, a quarter of, contributed to a quarter of global warming. And, you know, if there is more money, which we expect there will be some from the US and hopefully even China into it, to start the methanization, perhaps rather than decarbonization of the economy, yeah. that would be a great achievement. I think 103 countries committed to it in terms of reduction, but no actual concrete action plan. So having some from this COP would be a very good achievement. Yeah. Can I just build on that? I mean, it, I was going to make the same point about methane because it's what we call a quick win, as in mm. has extra warming capacity and it doesn't live that long in the atmosphere. And then it, the moment we reduce it, it's just like we can buy ourselves some time. There is the leakage and, and sort of in the fossil fuel and gas exploration. And there's something which is highly controversial between developed and, uh, mm. I wouldn't say developed and developing country, but it's just like in terms of the diet because it touches on cattle industry. Methane comes out of the Ca- comes rear out end of, of ruminants. Uh, of, <laughs> yes, correct. So basically in layperson's terms, cow burp or enteric fermentation, uh, and so basically, it's just obviously it becomes a more then the debate very quickly becomes into a or it gets wrapped around like so just transition right because for a lot of developing countries even in, in some areas in Africa is farmers rely on cows as their sort of living saving accounts and so if you say we don't have the same number of head of cows around the world we are reducing actual number of emitting entities, right? But then, so there is all these transition questions around it. And then obviously it touches on the food system question, which is then the diet It's a huge cultural question and political question that you're describing, trying to change the whole patterns of food and agriculture and and so on, but but not the only source of meat. Correct. A big one, but some of the other things we're talking about. On the energy side as well. Yeah. Uh, On the energy extraction, uh, perhaps an easier one. Well, we're going to have to draw to a close there, but we are just talking at the beginning of this COP and already with much more than perhaps might have been expected a week ago. So on that note of optimism, I'm going to close it. But uh, please, please do look at the work of our team. We've got a large team out there who are writing and broadcasting and in the thick of uh, all these talks. And you've heard the three who are with me now describe just how intense that business of following the talks night and day can be. Well, with that, a big thank you to my guests, Ruth Townend, Anna Yang, Bernice Lee. Do follow them all on Twitter, and the links are in our show notes as usual. And a reminder that you can find, as usual, all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, and on our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, and review us. And to read more from our experts and find out more about our events, and there's still a lot between now and the end of the year, and lots more in the new year now going up, or to become a member, and we would love to have you, and we have various Christmas offers to <laughs> persuade you to give uh, Chatham House membership to your friends and family, particularly your student-age family, do come to our website, chathamhouse.org, and you can find the work of all our programmes there, including our Environment and Society Centre, which we are very proud of. So that's goodbye from me, Bromwyn Maddox, but we'll all be looking out over the next 10 days at what happens at COP. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>